Good evening. So glad to see you back this evening. Take your Bibles, if you would. Turn to Hebrews chapter number 3. Hebrews chapter 3. And we'll begin reading in verse number 7 shortly. Why is it that we as people have so much trouble heeding warnings? Sometimes it's because we misunderstood, such as the case with the story that some time ago, zoo officials in Kirby, England, had to pay visitors for articles that were stolen by monkeys. But they were puzzled that one of the favorite items that the animals snatched was eyeglasses. An investigation soon re revealed the reason. The monkeys grabbed the glasses when the visitors leaned over to read a very small sign on the wall of the cage that said, beware, these monkeys steal spectacles. But often the problem is not due to misunderstanding the warning, but ignoring the warning. What do you do when you see a sign posted saying, do not touch wet paint? I don't lie. I don't know about you, but I always feel compelled to touch it and see if it's still wet. But not paying attention to warnings is a dangerous thing. The winter 1991 issue of the University of Pacific Review offered a chilling description of the 1986 Chernobyl nuclear disaster. There were two electrical engineers in the control room that night, and the best thing that could be said about them and what they were doing was playing around with the machine. They were performing what the Soviets later described as unauthorized experiments. They were trying to see how long a turbine would freewheel when they took the power off of it. Now taking the power off of that kind of a nuclear reactor is a difficult and dangerous thing to do because these reactors are very unstable in their lower ranges. In order to get the reactor down to that kind of power where they could perform the test they were interested in performing, they had to manually override six separate computer-driven alarm systems. One by one, the computer would come on and say, stop, dangerous, go no further. And one by one, rather than shutting off the experiment, they shut off the alarm and kept going. You know the results. Nuclear fallout that was recorded all around the world and the largest industrial accident ever to occur in the world. The instructions and warnings in scripture are just as clear. We ignore them at our own peril and tragically at the peril of others as well. One of my favorite stories about warnings is of the man who worked on a police bomb squad. He had a distinctive t-shirt. On the front of it read, bomb squad technician. And on the back it read, if you see me running, try to keep up. That's one I think I would abide by. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 1 states the biblical principle. He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. Perhaps the most famous 
example of an unbeliever's hardening their heart is the Pharaoh of Egypt during Israel's exodus. Pharaoh hardened his heart and he resisted the authority of God over his life. Pharaoh blinded himself and he refused to recognize God and in so doing he incurred the wrath and judgment of God. Some, however, are quick to point out that it says that God hardened, hearted, hardened Pharaoh's heart. But the truth is that we are told three times Pharaoh hardened his heart before we finally are told God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But as our text tonight reveals, one does not have to be an unbeliever to harden one's heart. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart, as in the rebellion in the days of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation, and I said they, they always go astray in their heart. And they have not known my ways, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have <clears throat> become partakers of Christ. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, while it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Tonight we're going to look at the second of two warnings that are found in the letter to the Hebrews. The first warning is found in their first four verses of chapter 2, and it pointed out the danger of drifting. And now he points out the danger of doubting. Our danger today is not in giving in to the pressure to return to some previously held belief, but many church members do have to fight the temptation to live lives that are essentially no different from the non-Christians all around them. So let's not be guilty of ignoring the warning today. First of all, a warning to hear. The previous passage concluded in verse 6 where it said, And we are God's house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. This does not mean that anyone who ever entertains a doubt is lost. But those who ultimately choose to walk away from the faith prove that they were never saved at all. Now picking up in verse 7, the author confronts us with an, exa an example of what the opposite looks like. Verse 7 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today is emphatic. Today, God is speaking through a greater someone than Moses. And today, God expects us to respond. The writer is reminding us that Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, that it has a relevant message, that it demands a present hearing. He knew 
that human tendency was to delay, to procrastinate, especially, it seems, with spiritual matters. So he repeats it three times. And I'd invite you to go back and underline in your Bible where these occur. Verse 7, it says, today. Verse 13, it says, today. And verse 15, it says, today. Today, of course, indicates urgency. It does not necessarily mean a 24-hour period, but rather it means now. In other words, it refers to this present moment in time. In his second letter to Corinth, the apostle Paul stated, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The time to respond with God is always now. The problem begins when we hear the word of God, we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and we tell ourselves that we need to take action, but then we do nothing. We tend to procrastinate with the most important issues of life. But the warning that runs throughout this section of the letter is that if we fail to follow through when we are challenged by the word of God, we face the inevitable hardening that occurs when we hear and fail to respond. The heart gets harder every time we say no. Say no to Jesus or to any part of his truth or his will. If we are tempted to put up our spiritual need, this scripture warns us of the danger of foolish choices and encourages us to not miss out on what God has for us, to not make light of each spiritual opportunity that he gives us. D.L. Moody's famous evangelist called it the biggest blunder of his life. It happened on October the 8th, 1871, during a preaching series in Farwell Hall in Chicago. His text was, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? At the conclusion of the sermon, Moody said he would give the people one week to make up their minds about Jesus. He then turned to Ira Sankey for a solo, and Sankey sang, Today the Savior calls. But by the third verse, Sankey's voice was drowned out by noise outside of the hall. The great Chicago fire had begun, and the flames were even then sweeping toward the hall. The clanging of the fire bell and the noise of the engines made it impossible to continue the meeting. In the years that follow, Moody wished that he had called for an immediate decision for Christ, for some of those lost their lives that night. Secondly, there is not only an, a warning to hear, but an example to heed. First of all, he talks about how Israel provoked God in verses 8 and 9. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 8 through 11 is actually an interpretation of Psalm 95 verses 7 through 11 and Israel is given to us as an example now let's consider this for a moment in the long history of the earth no migration of any people started out so well and with such great expectations as Israel's exodus 
from Egypt. But as, as becomes obvious, a good beginning does not ensure a good ending. After being in slavery in Egypt for 430 years, God led them out with a mighty hand. Moses, God's spokesman, delivered the ultimatum to Pharaoh, let my people go. And after a series of deadly plagues culminating in the death of every firstborn child in Egypt, Pharaoh finally relented. No sooner had Israel stepped into the wilderness to begin the journey than God provided an immense pillar of cloud to lead them by day and pillar of fire by night. As soon as the Israelites left, Pharaoh changed his mind once again, and he set out in pursuit with his army of chariots. Israel watched in amazement as God opened the Red Sea and allowed them to cross over on dry land. Liberal scholars sometimes say, well, the problem was it was the Reed Sea, not the Red Sea, and it was only about waist deep. No miracle implied other than that same knee-deep water drowned all of Pharaoh's army. It looks like a miracle either way to me, however you want to look at it. That no sooner had they celebrated the victory over the Lord's mighty deliverance than they began to grumble and to complain. In verse 8 and 9, the writer tells us how Israel provoked God. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Rather than having a grateful heart for all the astounding deliverances they had, had and the limitless provisions of God, there was a settled attitude of complaint because everything did not go exactly as they desired each and every day. They grumbled about the manna, so God gave them meat. They grumbled about the lack of water, so God gave them water. But the pinnacle of their provoking of God came when their catastrophic belief, unbelief was evidenced when they got to the edge of the promised land in Numbers chapter 14. Twelve spies were sent into the land to see what they were up against. Ten spies came back with a negative report that they could not take the land. That night, unbelief became rampant in the camp. All the people wept. And then, one after another, men rose onto their feet and demanded new leadership and a return to Egypt. And Caleb and Joshua then gave a positive report and urged the people to go up at once and possess the land. The people then sought to stone them. When they refused to obey the Lord, he pronounced his judgment upon them. Israel complained all through their 40 years in the desert. They never Learn God's ways despite mercy after mercy. Over and again, they complained and rebelled about the same old things. All the while, God's pillar of fire guided them. The manna fell from heaven every day. 
Water came forth from a rock, and even their clothes and their shoes did not wear out, for the Lord took care of them. Notice how God punished Israel in verses 10 and 11. Therefore I was angry with that generation, and I said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Just as the Egyptians got over their fear of God, the Israelites quickly got over their trust of God. That unbelief cost them everything. As a result, they missed out on blessings of God in the here and now and in eternity. The generation of Israel that had come out of Egypt doubted God, and because of their doubt, they never entered the land of Canaan. After they left Sinai, an 11-day journey could have taken them to the promised land. The people of Israel wandered in the wilderness because they didn't have the faith to enter the promised land. Canaan does not represent heaven. It, re it represents the place of spiritual blessing and victory. They believed him enough to come out of Egypt, but not enough to enter Canaan. They didn't believe God enough to enter into the land of promise. Forty years in the wilderness became a 40-year-long funeral procession. One commentator puts it this way. Begin with the number of adult males who we are told leave from Egypt. Well, Numbers chapter 1, verse 46 tells us that was 603,550 men. And then he adds the likely number of adult women. And he calculates that on the average, 90 Israelites died every day for 40 years. Until all of that generation that had left Egypt, except Caleb and Joshua, died out. Of the men who began the journey to the promised land, only two men got to cross over, and that 40 years later, Joshua and Caleb. The rebellious generation of Israel had died in the wilderness, and they are cited the Hebrew believers in the New Testament days as a warning not to repeat their sin. They did not have the faith to trust God for the future. And the writer of this Hebrew epistle is speaking to those who are already saved but who have not entered into the blessings of a Christian life. They doubt God. And as a result, they are having a wilderness experience. Without a personal acquaintance with the word of God, being a church member is like wearing a yoke being browbeaten to give money, having to do certain things. Everything is a duty instead of drawing to the wonderful person of Jesus Christ. Not only example to heed, but an instruction to implement. Personally, he says, or he says guard your heart, verse 12. Beware, brethren, lest there be any of you in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. The word that is translated depart 
is the root word for apostasy. The warning is to guard our hearts because they're in danger of turning their lives away from what they know to be the truth. What is an evil heart of unbelief? It is a heart that stands off from God, a heart that does not believe God, a heart that does not trust God, a heart that will not follow God. Personally, guard your heart. Corporately, encourage the brethren. Verse 13, he says, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The word translated exhort here comes from the Greek word parakleo. That is a word that is used by Jesus in John chapter 14 and verse 16 to refer to the Holy Spirit. The root meaning of that word has to do with coming alongside to help. Its meaning can be illustrated in picturing someone running alongside a long distance runner and exhorting them to finish the course in the face of their fatigue and their exhaustion. If you do not think that you need anyone else to help you to live out the Christian life, you are arrogant and puffed up and in danger of a fall. Charles Swindoll puts it this way, reaching out and touching someone is not just a nostalgic, sentimental advertising slogan. It is a biblical mandate. We need the encouragement of other believers because sin is deceitful. It looks good, it promises much, but it enslaves and it leaves one broken. It devastates family, it shatters lives, and it ruins our testimony. Not only that, but it hardens a person. The more a person sins, the easier it is for them to continue to sin. We need others to warn us when we are in trouble. How different the story of the Israelites in the wilderness might have been had they shown a daily concern to promote among themselves an abiding faith in God instead of mutually stirring up discontent by murmuring and unbelief. As the church of today, we still have the option of ensuring each other in our walk with the Lord, our carrying tales, and murmuring about injustices. And the fourth and final thing is the failure to consider. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? whose corpses fell in the wilderness. And to whom did he swear that he would, they would not enter into his rest, but to those who did not obey? For we see that they did not enter in because of unbelief. There is a series of three questions and three answers, one for each verse. First question, who were they who heard and yet were rebellious? 
And the answer is, was it not all of those who came out of Egypt? Question two, and with whom was he provoked for 40 years? With whom was God provoked for 40 years? And the answer is, was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And the third question is, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter in to his rest? And the answer was it not to those who were disobedient. The chapter begins with the faithfulness of Christ and it ends with the faithlessness of Israel. The word found at the beginning of the paragraph in verse 12 and at the end of the paragraph in verse 19 is the same. It is the word unbelief. It was unbelief and not something else that kept them out of Canaan. Their sin didn't keep them out of Canaan. Their la- the lack of evidence did not keep them out of Canaan. The lack of encouragement did not keep them out of Canaan. Dic- difficult circumstances did not keep them out of Canaan. It was unbelief that kept them out of Canaan. Dr. C.I. Schofield is the author of the well-known Schofield Reference Bible. He worked as a lawyer before his conversion. One night a Christian lawyer by the name of Tom McFeeters called on Schofield in his office. And as he was about to leave, he suddenly turned around to where Schofield stood and facing him directly said, for a long time I've been wanting to ask you a question that I have so far been afraid to ask, but I'm going to ask it now. Schofield said, I never thought of you as afraid. What is your question? McFeeters courteously said to him, I want to ask you why you're not a Christian. There was a pause for silence as the question was quite unexpected. And for a moment, he was staggered by it. Schofield thoughtfully answered, Does the Bible say something about drunkards having no place in heaven? And I'm a hard drinker, McFeeters. McFeeters said, you have not answered my question, Schofield. I ask, why are you not a Christian? He said, I've always been a nominal Episcopalian, you know. He says, but I do not ever recall anyone having shown me just how to be a Christian. How do I know how? To the answer, his friend McFaders had an answer. Drawing his New Testament from his pocket, taking a chair by the lawyer's office desk, he sat down and there read passage after passage from the Word of God, showing God's way of salvation simply and clearly. Then he put to Schofield the plain and definite question, Will you accept the Lord Jesus as your Savior? And Schofield answered, I'm going to think about it. And McFeeder says, no, you're not. You've been thinking about it all your life. Will you settle it now? Will you believe on Christ and be saved? Schofield was silent for a moment in deep thought, and then turning, he looked at his friend. He said, I will. Kent Hughes says the problem today that so many people, when they are asked about their faith, point to their exodus 
when they began with Christ. They can wax eloquent about their experience. How dare anybody ask questions about that? They went forward. They left Egypt. They were baptized and identified with God's people. They visibly drank from the same rock, Christ. They used the same redemptive vocabulary with the same pious inflections. The trouble came and they turned away. Their exodus was a convenient memory. But to trust God now, that is a problem for their faith is dead in our hearts we can become hardened so hardened that we expect nothing for God and nothing for him and if that is so then our belief is more in our heads than in our hearts the question is what are we going to do today are we going to listen and are we going to act let's pray Father, thank you for these who have been so faithful to come out tonight. and We recognize there is a tendency in us all to put off making decisions, especially concerning spiritual things. Lord, help us to recognize there is a danger in doing so that every no that we say to you, whether it's about salvation or about service or about some particular thing in our lives hardens our heart it leaves a scar and every scar makes it more difficult for uh, us to ever be reached at that depth again so lord help us and help us to be faithful to share with others the truth that we know father we ask that you would uh, be with us as we go from this place but certainly not from your presence. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.